All right. Wonderful. Great to be together, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. Let's grab a seat and open our Bibles to James 1. James chapter 1. If you're here, you're newer to Christianity or newer to the Bible, James at the back of your Bible, one of the last books of the New Testament. And Sunday school kiddos are dismissed right now. We love you, and we pray the Lord's blessing upon you as you learn about Christ there in Sunday school. Great. So James, in the last part of, of the Bible, and uh, Philippians 4, this is like the intro to the intro to the intro of the sermon, okay? We're not at the sermon yet. But Paul says to the church in Philippi, he says, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It is my favorite greeting in the whole of the Bible. And I use that this morning because this is my last sermon at East Campus. And I just want to tell you, how much I love you. We love you, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it has been such a tremendous happiness of my life and of Claire's life to be a part of this church community. And especially the past six months when I sort of transferred from central to east and became the uh, assistant to the regional manager of Doug Fern <laughs> here at, good, okay, you guys understand. So it has been, it's been such a joy and I just wanna tell you, uh, I love you and Claire and I are just so thrilled with the Lord's doing here and so, okay. James chapter one, we're transitioning from our series of whole disciples, defining what a whole disciple is, the very heart of Parkview's mission and vision, glorify God making whole disciples of Christ. And we now transition to the book of James. And it's a strategic transition because in some ways, James, in, of all the New Testament letters, is really built in such a way that it helps us understand what it looks like to be a whole disciple. I was just talking to a brother before the service, and he says, oh, James fires me up. I love James. I'm assuming many of us here, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, James is probably a beloved letter to you, and you love the book of James, because one of the main themes is just how to live as a whole disciple of Christ. And it touches on so many aspects of life, how we use our tongue, how we should use our money. This morning, rejoicing in trials because of God's work. And the list could go on and on and on. It's a wonderful book full of, full of wisdom. And a few things by way of introduction, if you look at verse one, it says that it's written by a man named James who is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, it's been always understood in the history of the church, is the half-brother of Jesus. The same James that we've read about, if you remember the book of Acts, like in Acts 15, he was one of the spiritual fathers who came from Jerusalem 
uh, in the Council of Jerusalem to discuss uh, with Paul different theological developments there in the early church. He's one of the great theologians of the early church, James is, half-brother of Jesus. And this is the same James that now is writing this letter to, it says in verse 1, the last uh, phrase there in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Meaning, uh, there was persecution at some point in the early church in the first century, and Jewish people were dispersed outside of Jerusalem and around that area, and because they were dispersed in that culture, they were among people that did not know and worship the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and the Exodus and so forth. And these Jewish people, they'd become Christians because they embraced the good news that Jesus was God's long-awaited Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting for, that he would come and rescue his people from their sin. And so they're Christians and they're Jewish, and they're now facing these churches, these gatherings of Christians around this area. They're facing all sorts of challenges. And so they need wisdom from God to know how to faithfully live for Jesus and as Jewish people. And what's amazing is if you think of the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, which we've gone through three or four years ago, uh, in chapter six, you probably know this section very well, right? It summarizes the whole of the instruction, the law of God for his people. And it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does Jesus do when Jesus comes in the first century? And he's teaching his disciples the summary of the law. What does he say? The summary of the law is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All, the whole disciple. We see that actually, if you look at verse four, it says that the purpose of the book of James and in these trials that James is writing about is that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word there of complete also could be uh, said to be whole. So again, Jesus was the master teacher, we might say, especially in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches how to be a whole disciple. And if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, it's all these teachings of Jesus that really cover the comprehensive aspects of, a, of the Christian life, of prayer and how to use your tongue and how to uh, speak about others and um, what to do with anger and lust and, uh, you know, list goes on and on and on, Right? And so here is James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he's now writing a letter to these first-century Christians, and you will notice as we go through each chapter of James how there's a ton of echoes constantly from the teaching of Jesus that we find in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew. And so I just want to start with just a, a by way of introduction, start there. And before we read the, read the passage, I want us to, to think about why James wrote his letter. This is the last thing before we read the passage and pray. And I've been really helped by, and the, and the teaching uh, preachers, pastors here at Parkview have been really helped by a few scholars, one guy named Andy Gemmel, who's a pastor in Scotland, uh, David Gibson, another guy named Dan Doriani, and a scholar named Doug Moo. And these scholars have shown that, in particular, James is writing to a church in trouble, to a bunch of Christians who are in trouble, a bunch of Christians behaving badly against one another. If you look at James 2, there's the problem of, sh of the, uh, showing favoritism to the rich more than to the poor people in the congregation. James 3, he says that the tongue 
the speech is being used to degrade and discourage and divide the church. And then in James 4, he talks about factions and divisions in the church because of sinful desires. And in chapter 4, which most people believe is kind of the, the climax of the whole book of James, James says this, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. So the problem, the fundamental spiritual problem that James is addressing is a church called, caught in spiritual adultery against God. I have a friend of mine who used to do ministry in the town of Oxford, England. And if you've ever been there, or maybe you've seen before, there's this river that goes through Oxford, and people do punting. Have you ever heard of punting before? You hop on a small boat. Someone in the back of the boat has a long metal stick, shoves it in the ground, and they kind of go through the river like that, okay? Now, what happens, my friend has, has said before, as he's watched new people, visitors come to this town and try to do punting on these boats, is imagine this is water here, and the boat is there, they will try to step off of the land onto the boat and the boat will then move and they'll do the splits and splash. They'll fall in the water. And that, that image of kind of being split and falling into the water is the is an image of what's happening in the book of James. Split loyalties. In our passage this morning, verse, uh, verse eight, it says that they are a double-minded man, unstable in all their ways. Double-minded, split loyalties to be someone who's, who professes, I love God, but then in the way that you act, you deny God. And that's the problem of what's going on here. So James then, being a good doctor, writes to heal this brokenness, to bring wholeness, right? Verse four, wholeness, complete maturity in Christ. And so today we're gonna learn this from James one. God brings, God allows trials in our lives so that we can become spiritually whole. Suffering, Parkview Church, when used by God, responded rightly to by us, it can actually serve our sanctification. That's a big theology word, meaning becoming more like Jesus. Suffering serves sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. So let's learn this as we read this passage, starting in verse two of chapter one. This is God's word for us. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is God's word. It is true, it's given to us in love, so let's pray together. Father, please, as we approach your word, give us the strength 
the insights, the energy from your Holy Spirit to pay attention to your word, to learn from your word, to come in a posture of humility, ready to receive the good news of Christ. James in chapter one says, receive with meekness the word of God planted in you. So that's what we want, meekness, just humility before you, openness for you to fulfill any purpose that you want to fulfill in us, Lord. If there's people here that don't, know, don't yet know Christ, I pray that you would draw them to saving faith in Jesus, your son. For those of us who are in Christ and all of us, no matter where we're at, we're suffering. We have trials of various kinds, it says there in verse two. So then help us then count it as joy because, because we know you and we have reality with you. Please help us go deeper into Jesus through this text for the glory of your name, amen. So James 1 shows us that our Lord Jesus is the doctor who heals our malunion fractures. Malunion fractures. Anyone familiar with what that is? A malunion fracture, I learned just this week, and I talked to uh, my father-in-law, is a, is a doctor. And there's a uh, medical website of a university, and it says this. There's, here's a malunion fracture, okay? It's after a bone is broken, fractured, the body will start the healing process. But if the two ends of the broken bone are not lined up properly, the bone can heal with a deformity called a malunion. Bad union, togetherness, badness, together. A malunion fracture occurs when a large space between the displaced ends of the bone have been filled in by new bone, thus causing lots of pain. So then, if you or I had a malunion fracture, we have to get treatment, surgery, and the goal of treatment is to realign. There needs to be a realignment of the bone in a position that allows the whole of the arm, so to speak, if it was broken, the whole arm then to function properly. But in order then to realign, here it is, and to make the bones properly function as a whole in health, the doctor in surgery will re-break the bone so as to realign the fracture. Breaking the bone to bring healing. In other words, the doctor uses pain in order to accomplish his healing purpose. And that's the picture of James 1, of what is Jesus up to in your trial and in my trial. He's using pain in order to accomplish his healing purpose to make us whole again, to make us complete and mature and sturdy in faith in him. Three points we're gonna see this of what God is doing in our pain, in our trials. First is God's work in our trials, verses two to four. Second is God's wisdom for our trials, verses five to eight. And then third, God's way through our trials, verses nine to 11. God's work, God's wisdom, God's way in our trials. First, God's work in our trials, verses two to four. Very simply, God's work, Parkview East Campus, in your trial, in my trials, to make us complete, whole, mature Christians. We see that, don't we? In verse four, that you may be, that, that's a word of purpose. The purpose being of these trials, that you may be perfect and complete, whole, lacking in nothing. Maturity, becoming more like Jesus in character and how you operate and how you act towards God and towards neighbor. 
So we begin then in verse one. We are to have joy in God when we face trials of various kinds. And that's all of us here. Notice how it says trials of various kinds. It doesn't say consider all joy when your trials are very small. Nor does it say this is only for those who are really suffering. It's for both. Various trials, multiple different types of way we're suffering right now. And all of it, no matter where you're at, you can consider it joy, count it all joy. So fill in the blank here. Part of you, for you to get the maximum amount of helpfulness from this sermon, I would ask you right now to think about, maybe you write it down in your notes or type it into your phone or just keep in your mind, what is that trial that you are walking through right now? Or trials, plural. What are they? And by trial, by the way, I mean, I've heard this said once, what a trial, what suffering is, is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. And this is what is called the testing of faith, what is going to purify us. So fill in the blank. What is the trial that you are experiencing? Some of us have parenting trials. Family life is chaotic or the children's behavior is saddening us and discouraging us. And others of us have mental trials of depression that's so dark or some fear or some regret that just kind of lodged itself deep into our soul and just kind of keeps coming back to bother us. Relationship trials, conflict with the in-laws, marriage not working out as what you had hoped it to be, loneliness, older parents acting foolishly. Then you've got physical trials, disabilities, facing the death of a loved one. The list can go on and on. But here's the point. Trials of various kinds. James is saying, Parkview, East Campus, fill in the blank. To get the maximum amount of helpfulness from God's word, yes, it was written in the first century to a specific group of people, but it was written for our blessing, for the edification and help and encouragement and strengthening of every Christian believer throughout history. Trials of various kinds. What is your trial? What is your trial? And here in James, verse 2, he says, we must count it all joy. Really helped by a scholar, David Gibson, who makes this clarification. He says, James does not say, feel it all joy. Not primarily feelings. Happiness is circumstantial, but joy is the deep, settled knowledge that God is in the midst of this. That nothing he sends me, nothing is outside of his care and his loving purposes for me. Nothing. Malunion fracture, the Lord, the Lord, we have to trust that he is our genius world-renowned doctor who carefully and wisely brings and allows pain into our lives in order to heal us where we need it most. That's what he's, James is talking about in verse three. Look at verse three with me. He says, for you know, amazing, right? You know this. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing, meaning uh, purification. That's what the word means in the original Greek. The process by which a metal that's deformed or not pure becomes pure. So what's happening here is through these trials, you know that the testing of your faith, that God, we might say, is cranking up the heat. He's turning up the heat in your life to clean up your life. To remove 
the inconsistencies in your character, to remove the prayerlessness that you and I have about those three or four areas of our life that we just really struggle to go there with God, to remove from our lives our lusts, to remove from our lives our envy of our coworkers who are really successful and it seems like God gave them one million gifts and gave you half a gift. You know how it is in our hearts. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so James then is connecting joy as we consider and think about our trials from a greater purpose, from a greater perspective. And what's that greater purpose or perspective? Verse four, steadfastness. Steadfastness having its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Steadfastness meaning resilience. That's a common word that we're using nowadays in our culture. It means to bear under, to endure. Imagine an Olympic athlete training for the Olympics, a heavy you know, bodybuilder, heavier and heavier weight. They have to learn how to bear up under it over time. Why? So they get stronger. So they get steadfast. So they can endure. So they can have the type of character that when it counts in the moment of the Olympic lift, you know, they can do, they can do it. Because they've gone through the long, arduous process that's making them stronger and stronger. So the point is this. We can count it all joy when we face trials because according to James 1, these trials develop in us a more purified faith, a, a greater reality with God that he is at work making us more mature, more complete, more like Jesus. That's why we can rejoice in them because he's accomplishing something wonderful as we have more and more of the likeness of Jesus in our lives. There was a missionary and author named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you might know that name. Others of you might not. She, just a wonderful woman of the past generation. And she faced terrible trials in her life. After waiting five years to be married to her college sweetheart, a man named Jim, they got married, but then 27 months later, after their marriage, Jim was killed in doing missions work in Ecuador. Then, 13 years later, Elizabeth Elliot gets remarried, and then three years later from that marriage, her husband dies of cancer. And there's other ways that she suffered as she did missions work and things like that, but she, she wrote in a, book, in a book that was published after her death called Suffering is Never for Nothing. Love that title. Suffering is never for nothing, part of you. She said this, the deepest things I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires, purifying faith, have come the deepest things that I know about God. The greatest gifts in my life have also entailed the greatest suffering. Part of you church right now, you know that, don't you? Some of you here are in your 50s or 60s or 70s and you've really suffered a lot. And you know there's been a deeper, sweeter, more vibrant love and intimacy with Jesus because of the suffering, because of the trial, not around it, but it was through it that the Lord met you in a profound way to make you 
the radiant, beautiful saint that you are today. I look around here, my last sermon at East Campus, and I look out and I just see amazing, amazing Christian men or women who are in the latter part of their life. I just love you guys. And it's because you've suffered. And as you've suffered, what you've done is you've counted it all joy. And as you have done that, the Lord in his mercy has made you a Christian man or woman of resplendent beauty and light and fullness. And you bless this congregation way more than you know. We love you. We are so thankful. Praise God for you. That's what James 1 is getting at. The fire's turned up. The faith is purified. We become steadfast, more like Jesus. Therefore, count it all joy. Brother or sister, you, you can walk in joy. Isn't that amazing? The joy of the Lord can strengthen you right now and tomorrow as you face your trial. That's what James is saying. You can bank on it. You can trust this Lord. So now we ask, if, if like Elizabeth Elliot, deepest lessons about God and knowing God are learned through trials, then how exactly do we learn these things? How do we learn how to count it all joy? And that's verses five to eight, God's wisdom for our trials. Notice the way that James works through this passage, right? Count it all joys, you make trials, the trials will make you more steadfast. Verse four, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If anyone asks, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Isn't this so true? One of my friends talks about how in trials and suffering, normally what you have is you have confusion that comes with it. I remember a friend of mine talking to me uh, years ago, and they said, I, they're in a trial, it's a really difficult circumstance, and they just said, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do right now. You probably have said the same things. Because with suffering comes kind of this mental challenge of, I just, I'm not really sure how to navigate this. And, and guess what? James 1 is God's mercy to you, showing you, here's what you do. If that's you, don't sweat it. Just ask God for wisdom. And wisdom not being, I know, I know this is what we wish it was at times, but wisdom is not that the Lord gives you detailed insight into all the mysteries of what he's doing and why he's doing it in your life. Some of us ask the wrong questions when we're suffering. Why did this happen to me, Lord? Did I sin? Is this Satan's attack? Is this someone else's foolishness? Is this my foolishness? And we can get lost in this swirl of anxiety and depression and discouragement because we just are, we're trying to analyze it to death. I'm prone to this. I am so prone to this, that, in that kind of death by analysis. Why is it like this? Why, you know, do this. Is it that? Was it because of that three years ago? Was it, I, I, you know, and I can just get lost. But the mercy of James to us is just to hold on, stop right there, and look upward to God and say, Lord, give me wisdom, not why are you doing this, but rather, what do you want me to do now that this is happening in my life? Now the trials come, don't ask, okay, give me all the mysteries of why this is happening. No, ask, Lord, what can I do now? 
as a faithful follower of Jesus right here, right now. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, J.I. Packer says, wisdom in the Bible, what James is talking about, it's like driving. It's like driving. What matters in driving is the speed and appropriateness of your reactions to the things and the soundness of your judgment as to what scope a situation gives you. You simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. That's what you do when you drive. What's your next turn? What's your destination? If you're in Christ, your destination is eternal bliss with him forever. And what you need to do right now is think through, Lord, by your wisdom, help me think through. What's my next step here today in light of my future with you? So verse five, in that particular trial, very clear. We love the simplicity of James. Thank you, Lord, for James. He just tells you as it is. Here's the deal. Pray. Ask God. If you need wisdom, ask for it. But if you're like me, prayer can be difficult. And so the next line in verse five, he motivates you. He says, God, here's what God is like. The God you're praying to is the God who gives generously to all without reproach. AKA, God is not fault finding. God doesn't think about, okay, well, you asked me for wisdom three years ago and look how that went. That's not what God's like. Arms crossed, disappointed. No, not fault finding, but generous to all without reproach. He's not a stingy grandfather. He's the overflowing, abundant, heavenly father who created this world and he loves to give good gifts to his children. Luke 11, Jesus says this, right? Here's a section where James, in one sense, is echoing Jesus, his brother. Where Jesus says, if you need the Holy Spirit, ask the heavenly father for it. Why? Because he loves to give good gifts to his children that he loves. The Lord loves you. He wants to give you wisdom, so ask him for it. Romans 8.38 says it like this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things not being the things of a Tesla. Maybe you want that or whatever it is. No, the spiritual things like wisdom that you need to live right here, right now in your trial to bring glory to Jesus. Yet then James gives a caveat, doesn't he? In verses six to eight, he says, let them ask in faith, trusting the Lord with no doubting. And then verse eight, for the one who doubts is like a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, let's be clear here what this is not saying, because some of us right now, when you read this, and I'm kind of built this way, your conscience feels like, oh, well, I'm out. God's not gonna answer my prayers. Too much doubt. What this is not saying is that you're struggling with doubt. You'll never have God answer your prayers. Well, we know that's true because the gospel of Mark, there's a man whose son is, is dying because he's demon-possessed, and he says, Jesus, please heal it. And Jesus says, if you have faith, I'll heal him. And he says, what? He says, I believe. Hell, my unbelief. The problem James addresses, rather, is what we've already mentioned. Verse 8, a double-minded man, unstable in all his, in all his ways. In all his ways. Someone who affirms God theologically on paper, you'll check the box on all the good doctrine. But practically in your life, hypocrisy, actually denying God and how you live, wanting God's wisdom from Scripture on certain things, but then totally rejecting and rebuffing God's wisdom and maybe following the counsel of a foolish friend or whatever in other areas of life because you'd rather just live for yourself than for Christ. 
But the point here is this. What James is driving out is simplicity, is a oneness of heart in devotion to God. Consistency, spiritual consistency is what God is after. Sincerity, honesty, reality with God. That's what he's looking for as we ask. So, as the trial comes and you need wisdom, you seek the Lord and you say, Lord, give me wisdom so that I can rightly react to this trial because I know that you're working in it to make me more mature like Jesus. That's what we've seen so far, right? The malunion fracture, God's using pain in your life to accomplish his purpose of making you look more like Jesus. There's a the best poem. Okay, I'm gonna read you a poem here before we go to verses nine to 11. It's the best poem I've ever heard on this by a man named John Newton. John Newton was an 18th century pastor and he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Anyone heard of that one? Yeah. Poem entitled, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And it tells the story through the poem of a prayer conversation. It's, all, it's also a hymn. Maybe some of you have sung it as a hymn. It tells a conversation between a suffering Christian in a trial and the Lord. And this is dialogue back and forth. And so here it is, the very beginning. I, I edited it just slightly, okay? I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Meaning, Lord, I just want to grow steadfastness, maturity, completeness, wholeness. Lord, give it to me. I'm asking you. I want to be a great Christian. Then the next few verses. You, Lord, taught me this faith-filled prayer, but the way you answered it drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, you transform my life with your loving power. But instead of this, you made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. You crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Then the Christian turns to God again and says, Lord, why is this, I trembling cry? Will you pursue your worm to death? Why are you treating me this way, we say. God responds. Listen to this. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. That's what God is doing in the trials. He's peeling your hands off of these earthly joys that we're so prone to love. But we know that when our hearts love these things, they actually sap, spiritually sap, the devotion and love we ought to have for the Lord. And so the Lord, as the poem said, right, he brings in trials. These inward trials I employ, I work these into your life so that I may humble you, break you from pride, and therefore you all the more trust and love me. That's God's great plan for your life in your trials right now. So we saw first God's work in our trials, second God's wisdom, and finally God's way through our trials, God's way through our trials, verses nine to 11. Quite simply, God's way through trials, the way he works in us, we just saw a little bit from this poem, is that he humbles us so that he might exalt us. Notice how this works in verses nine to 11. Verse nine, let the lowly, meaning the, the poor, financially poor brother, boast in his exaltation. Verses 10 to 11, let the rich man boast in his humiliation. 
Now remember James, right? He's seeking to show how God's at work in trials, giving wisdom to make us more like Jesus. And then what he does now in verses nine to 11, he says, here's a common example, a common situation of trials that would face really any Christian in any church. In any church, there's gonna be poor people and there'll be rich people. And each of these is a trial. Now, we might think poverty more sensically seems like a trial, right? Because in poor people, the trial is not having enough to live on month by month. But it also comes with it the feeling of being humiliated. Poor people feeling worthless, the mistreatment, the despair. In a culture that tells you you are what you own, well, then if you don't own much, who are you? And so what James is saying is this. He's saying if you're poor, boast in your exaltation. And then he flips them to the rich and he says the trial of the rich, and we see this in Jesus and a lot of teaching in the New Testament, is the, is the self-sufficiency, the pride that comes with wealth, accolades in this earthly life, being well-known, being well-liked. The rich can feel not humiliated, but exalted. I'm rich in a culture that tells me because you're rich, you are somebody. Therefore, what you do, what we're tempted to do, is look down, is to judge others. But James, in a brilliant move of gospel jujitsu, did you notice what he does? He inverts how poor and rich should think about their identity. Do not think of yourself, your deepest identity, based on earthly life, material blessing, or lack thereof. No, poor, boast in your exaltation. Rich, boast in your humiliation. For the poor in a consumer culture where you are what you have, not much value. But in the culture of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus, yes, you are worth of inestimable valuable. Think about what you have in Jesus, the riches you have in Christ, the forgiveness of all of your sins, adopted into God's family where he loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. John 17 is what Jesus says in the upper room prayer. And then, not only that, right now, that's where you're at spiritually, but eternally in heaven, an inheritance of glory waiting for you in the new creation where it says, verse 12 of James, receiving a crown of life given to those who are steadfast in trials. This is who you are. This, if you're poor, this is your exaltation in Jesus. But then if you're rich, the gospel then teaches you humility, humiliation. A consumer's culture that says you're somebody because of the stuff you own, James says, watch out for pride. Watch out for the ways that it deadens your spiritual life. Watch out for the ways that riches makes you look down on others, the deceitfulness of wealth, as Jesus talks about it in the gospels. Because in the end, the gospel shows us just how bad you are. Did you know that you and I are so bad? It took the crucifixion of the Son of God to rescue us from our spiritual poverty and to fill us with grace. Furthermore, verse 11, right? He says, James says, your life will end soon. Your life is like a flower. It's here today, quick moment of glory, but then gone. So therefore, focus on humbling yourself before God. The whole point then of verses nine to 11 is the gospel shows you both, both your exaltation in the riches in Christ, but then also your humiliation in spiritual poverty and your need 
for Christ. But here's what I want us to notice together. This was amazing. I love this. This was fun for me this week, discovering this. In verses two to four, we have God's work in our lives through trials to make us mature. Verses five to eight, our response to those trials and asking God for wisdom. And then verses nine to 11, God shows us, and here's what that wisdom looks like. It looks like, in trials, the gospel way of death and resurrection, humiliation and exaltation. To truly grow in wholeness in your trials, Parkview Church, you must be humbled so that you are exalted, and the exalted must be humbled so that by God's grace, by God's grace alone, you actually are exalted Spiritually, And this makes sense of the whole book of James. The climax of the book of James, chapter 4. Listen to what it says. In 4, verse 4, James says, You are double-minded spiritual adulterers. How dare you, James says. Humiliation. Humiliation. Then he says, two verses later, But God gives more grace. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's where the book of James takes us. The way God works in our trials to break our addiction to self, to break our double-minded love for God, but also for the world, like that punt, and, you know, and you're spreading out, to give us real wisdom and maturity and steadfastness. The way he does it is humiliation, where the suffering exposes our sin to exaltation by his grace, death, and then resurrection. Why do I make this a point? Because this has to be true. This has to be true as the way of becoming whole and complete in the Lord. Why? Because it's the way of Jesus. Friends, remember that in the first century in Palestine, our eternally rich God parachuted himself into this world as a poor baby boy who became a humble Jewish carpenter from Nazareth but who was God walking in human flesh. And Jesus was the only whole, mature, perfect person to walk on this planet, seeking God's wisdom, to love him, to live for him. And so Jesus endured a literal trial before his death, before the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, going to crucifixion. Jesus goes to death, the whole person, the mature, perfect person, Jesus, on the cross, humiliated humiliated for you and me. Jesus did that for you. His wholeness, healing our brokenness through his humiliation, and three days later, God raised him in exaltation as Lord and King over all things. Parkview, because of Jesus, God is at work in your trials. God is right now giving you wisdom as you ask it because he's generous, and God's way is to humble you, yes, but it's too exalts you. This is the way Jesus makes you whole. Yes, it hurts. Yes, right now, the pain is real. The malunion fracture of our souls hurts so bad. But the Lord of the universe is a Jewish carpenter named Jesus who has conquered death and right now has nail scars in his hands and feet. And he's ruling powerfully and carefully and wisely over your life. And he's a genius doctor. And he's making you whole through the pain. I'll finish with this illustration from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house 
God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up the towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But God is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And if we let him, Parkview, if we let him, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long. The trials are very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing Less. This is who God is, making you dazzle with glory through the trials. Brothers and sisters, I'll say it like this. One of my friends likes to say, in your life right now, you don't need smaller trials. You need a bigger Jesus. And James 1 shows us the big Jesus that you need, making you through the pain, healing you, making you into a creature radiant and pulsating with energy, joy, and wisdom. Praise and glory. Father, we love you that that's what you're doing now through our trials. Would you give us faith to ask for wisdom, to walk through them in just this way, with joy, humiliation, exaltation, trusting you. We love you. Amen.